Welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We're a bi-weekly show released every other Friday. This is episode 86. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. I am Wolfman Josh. Conducting tonight on behalf of our elder god, Jay of the Dead, and broadcasting from Salt Lake City. And my lone co-host tonight is... Dave, uh, Dr. Shock Becker, from just outside Philadelphia, PA. So as you guys can probably tell, Jay of the Dead is not here this evening. He had a really busy week. Um, For those of you who listen to Jay's other show, Movie Podcast Weekly, you've probably heard that um, Geekcast Rye is in the Salt Lake City area to spend some one-on-one, some FaceTime with uh, Jason and Andy and Carl. So they're they're out having a good time pushing each other into bushes and going on roller coasters. Who knows what they're doing? Uh, but Jay was too busy to really get to all of the horror comedies that we were going to cover this week, and we really wanted to do a good job on that episode because we know it's one the listeners have been waiting for for a long time. So rather than kind of half-ass it, we decided let's put it off one week and we'll do a different thing this week. So I think this is fun. This is like uh, the inmates taking over the asylum. Right. Or I guess in this episode it would be the uh, freaks taking over the castle. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It needs its own name, kind of. It needs its own... uh, um, I don't. I mean, you could always go two point but that's kind of that's kind of overdone at this point. I don't think. Let's that, call that it. What if we call it "Son of Horror Movie Podcast"? There you go. That works. <laughs> yeah, that works. So this week is just me and Dave, and right. I'm kind of excited. We've got a fun show. We're going to be talking about the work of H.P. Lovecraft, and I don't know how familiar you are with H.P. Lovecraft, Dave, but. Honestly, I'm not so familiar with it. Not as much as I probably should be. No, I'm not either, to be honest with you. I don't know that I've read his stories. I do remember hearing in, is it the Cats of Othar? On a podcast one time, uh, the, the host was practicing for audiobooks. And he had done, uh, just as a practice, the Cats of Othar. And I, he did a good job with it, and it's a decent enough story. But I'm not real familiar, other than movies, I'm not real familiar with uh, with any of his work either. So the interesting thing about Lovecraft is he became famous posthumously. So uh-huh. he uh, really, I mean, he had p- some published works, but only one of them was published in book form. Uh, the rest were like in magazines and, and papers and things like that. And he really, he died poor, he, you know, with, with no fame whatsoever. And he's gone on to be one of the most influential writers um, in modern horror, you know, people like Clive Barker and Stephen King and Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman have all uh, listed him as an influence, Mike Mignola, but also film directors like John Carpenter, Guillermo del Toro, and even the artist H.R. Geiger, who is, of course, responsible for the alien and, and many more horrific images. All of these guys name H.P. Lovecraft as an influence, and of course, Stuart Gordon. <laughs> Right. Is probably responsible for every successful um, version of an H.P. Lovecraft film that I can think of. The, the majority of them, yeah, definitely. Stuart Gordon, of course, has done films like Dolls and Robot jo- Robot Jocks and The Pit and the uh-huh. Pendulum, uh, Space Truckers and Fortress. Uh-huh. But really, his best known work is the th- 
stuff that he adapted from H.P. Lovecraft, and those are films like Reanimator and Dagon and what else? Help me out here. Castle Freak. Castle Freak, yeah, that's yep, that one too. Yeah, he's and um and they usually they're really it's interesting the 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 approach he takes to them too, like Reanimator. Uh, there's quite a bit of, I guess, comedy in that movie. You know, it, it, oh, it's yeah. um, one we could definitely, we could have uh, brought up, and possibly will bring up on our on our horror comedies uh, episode. Um, but then we'll get into it a little bit more now. But then you get something like Castle Freak. There's not a stitch of comedy in that movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is just a straight on horror film. Uh, very very dark film, actually. And Reanimator, again, is a film that was kind of influential on Dead Alive, a film we're going to be covering on our horror yep. comedy episode. So, yep. From Beyond, that's another Stuart Gordon film that was adapted from H.P. Lovecraft. So he's really, um, most of his best-known works are adapted from Lovecraft, and most of the films you would have associate with Lovecraft are directed by Stuart Gordon. So you kind of can't talk about one without talking about the other when you're talking about True. movies. Definitely. So this episode, we're going to have a special guest. He's a guy that um, I know through my wife. My wife took an American literature class from our guest when uh, she was in college. And I remember she brought home this H.P. Lovecraft book at the time and said, hey, you're like, you're into horror movies. You should give this a try. And I did. And and there were some pretty creepy tales in there. And he has written a new book about H.P. Lovecraft. He's kind of an expert on, on the man. And so I thought that would be cool to get him on the show. He'll be joining us um, at a later date to talk about heavy metal horror movies. He's a big heavy metal fan as well. And he's a, he's an acquaintance of Kyle Bishop. Um, they're both Utah professors and dealing in horror movies. And so they've rubbed shoulders and elbows and other things, I'm sure over the years. Uh And so, um, I was excited to get Carl on the show to talk about heavy metal horror, but it turns out, yeah, with the release of his new book, perfectly timed for us having to make up an episode on the spot. And I thought we would have him on to talk about H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. So let's go ahead and check out that interview now. And then afterward, we will review a couple of H.P. Lovecraft films that you and I have seen. Yep. Sounds good. Okay, so we are entering the interview portion of our show. and We're welcoming a very special guest, Carl Cederholm. How's it going, Carl? Good. How are you doing? Good. So Carl here is a professor of humanities and department chair at Brigham Young University and a horror scholar, which is why we're talking to him tonight, and an acquaintance of Dr. Walking Dead, Kyle Bishop. Is that correct? Yeah, you got that right. Yeah. So that's awesome. We we love Kyle around here and we have him here as often as we possibly can with his schedule. yeah. Yeah, he's a great guy. Definitely worth listening to anytime. Yeah, and we, our listeners love his books, and he's, he's just an awesome guy. So um, I was excited to introduce you to them. We had talked about doing a heavy metal horror episode somewhere in the future, but you've recently released a book, and I thought that we had kind of an off week this week. We were supposed to do a horror comedy episode, and mm-hmm. our main host uh, wasn't able to. He hates horror comedy, and he wasn't able to <laughs> complete his homework assignment. And so I thought... Uh, the absence of an episode this week lent itself to having you on the show and and talking about your book, which I'm excited to talk about. Sure. So before we get going, talking about your book and HP Lovecraft, just to give our listeners an idea of where you're coming from, maybe you could give us your top 10 horror movies, just so we have an idea of where you're coming from as a horror fan. Sure. So I would start with number 10, 
with the ring you know the remake of the of uh, ringu yeah absolutely i love that film and the number nine would be the descent um number eight would be um i mean it's a little tricky i think probably something by stephen king maybe the mist all right let's go let's go with the mist okay uh yeah (laughs) number seven would be um would be Argento's uh, Suspiria. Nice. Uh, number six would be The Exorcist. Okay. Um, five, Night of the Living Dead. Very good. Um, four would be um, The Fog. Um, okay. Three, I think, this is hard because now I want to do just Carpenter, but... I was going to say, three, I'm assuming that's the Carpenter version, not the remake. Right, the Carpenter for sure, yeah. The remake, we can... We can Put that at number 300, I think. But, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so three would be probably Prince of Darkness, um, another Carpenter film. Two would be Halloween. Mm-hmm. And uh, then number one, my number one horror movie of all time is actually Alien. Wow, um, awesome. I absolutely adore that film, and I cannot get enough of it. So Those are excellent picks across the board and very much in line with Uh, You know, it's a nice cross-section of our different hosts. All of us have one of Romero's dead films, and we're all arguing about which is the one to have in your list. So it's great to have a Night of the Living Dead guy, because I think (laughs) it's come down to a battle between Day of the Dead and Dawn of the Dead between the the other four of us. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) And Suspiria, though, sets you apart, because I know one of our hosts hates Suspiria, and I'm always battling in favor of Suspiria. So we just did our witchy women episode and we talked about uh, Suspiria a little bit. I think that's just a lovely film. I mean, I, it's, you know, it's hard to do a top 10 cause also, I mean, you got to have Texas chainsaw on there and a few others. I'm not yeah. a big Friday the 13th fan, but, but I also like Wes Craven's films like new nightmare and some of those, those would be definitely part of my all time favorites. But, uh, just uh, as kind of a fun way of listing them out. I think those are my 10 right now. So Really solid. I liked it. Thank you. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, sounds so great. My wife took a class from you. It was an American literature class where she read some Lovecraft. She brought home a, a big uh, book of, of short stories of his um, yeah. that you had assigned, I assume. Yeah, I've been teaching Lovecraft since probably... Well, since I came to BYU in 2002, I've always taught a course with Lovecraft. And then when I was a grad student at the University of Utah, I taught a course where I used Lovecraft there as well. He's been a staple of my career. So what first interested you in his work, and especially in teaching it or looking at it academically? Well, a lot of it had to do with my growing uh, interest in in uh, Stephen King. I mean, I read Stephen King as a, as a kid, like a lot of people do, but, um, I realized that, uh, well, Stephen King, when he was a little kid, his mother found a box of books and other odds and ends, um, that was left by, by Stephen King's father. Um, cause he uh, abandoned the family when King was a, was a young, was a young boy. Okay. And this mother found this box of books, and in that box of books was a, was a book of Lovecraft's, a selection of Lovecraft's tales. And King read those tales, 
and became intrigued by Lovecraft. And King has written some Lovecraft-inspired stories. And so I started reading Lovecraft because of King, and I became attracted to Lovecraft um, because of that, but also because Lovecraft was trying to be kind of a, a next-generation Poe. Yeah, that's what I it's, understand. He was a big Poe um, appreciator. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, in fact, he called Poe, um, he called him my god of fiction. Oh, wow. He just really, he really, really liked Poe. <laughs> so not to put you on the spot, but maybe you could tell us what Poe-isms we might notice in Lovecraft and then what uh, Lovecraft-isms we might recognize in, in Stephen King. Well, uh, yeah, that sounds great. Um, one thing for sure about about Poe in Lovecraft is um, has a lot to do with the style. Uh, Lovecraft tended to adopt a, um, I mean, you might call it an old-fashioned style. It's I don't know that it is old-fashioned per se, but you know, kind of long sentences, um, things, you know, that kind of thing, that 19th-century style. But the other thing that he really borrowed heavily from Poe was the emphasis on achieving a single effect. So Poe believed that um, fiction shouldn't be didactic or, you know, have a moral or a message or telling us all to be good little boys and girls, that it should culminate in an effect, um, a strong, powerful feeling. And Mm -hmm. Lovecraft really, really took that to heart. And he tried to craft his fiction so that it would build up very slowly um, towards a final climactic kind of bang or, or pop. Right. Um, and in fact, just the other day I was reading some of Lovecraft's statements about how to write stories. And he was like, this is what you have to do. You have to build an effect. <laughs> and interesting. It's just, That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I like He's, that. I like um, going straight to that emotion too. And, and looking at how that is going to immediately impact the audience, because obviously that's why a lot of us, enjoy horror is for yeah. that kind of visceral roller coaster ride feeling seriously so so in king's work what might we recognize if we're reading stephen king and say oh i bet this is kind of in his dna because of lovecraft yeah well let me just start with mentioning a couple of stories um that will kind of trigger some of the connections but like um in king's first short story collection he in Night Shift has a story called Jerusalem's Lot, which is kind of a pre a pre story to Salem's Lot. Right. Yeah. And Jerusalem's Lot is a Lovecraftian story. It has that that sense of going into a like a town that's maybe abandoned or forbidden in some way. And as you investigate further and further into the town and, and what's going on there, you find in the case of that story, you find kind of this like a satanic church or Satanic isn't the right word because Lovecraft wasn't so sold on the sort of Judeo-Christian stuff, but but you find that something that's off, kind of like a shadow over Innsmouth thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where you take a detour. <laughs> yeah, you take you go somewhere you're not supposed to go, or or that you're not very welcome. And as you go deeper and deeper, things become more and more uncanny until the final revelation, which is that everything that you thought um, was one way is the other way. And your whole sense of the universe and things is upended. Wow. That's, that's really cool. I know that, um, 
Salem's Lot's a, a fan favorite uh, and the favorite of the hosts around here. So that's that's cool to see that that may have been uh, heavily inspired by. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I love Salem's Lot, too. I mean, it's, I mean, King, I mean, I could go on about King for hours. But, you know, in fact, the other story might be, I mean, it's, I mean, I personally think it's a very Lovecraftian tale, but King isn't deliberately trying to adopt the style as much, but is that is the story Children of the Corn okay. uh, from that same collection where, you know, uh, how does that story begin with the car breaking down or they think they hit something, I think is what it is. And then they're in this just uncanny, bizarro place where these kids are, are um, sacrificing to this creature that lives in the corn and all that. That's, that has a Lovecraftian mood to it, I think, too. You know, the fascinating thing is that is really um, the structure for what a lot of modern horror film has become. Just the basic idea of that. Uh, we've gotten away from the uncanny a bit, for the most part, I think. But even if you look at the, sl- at the slasher films, like uh, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Friday the 13th, they're all built around this idea of you know, car breaks down middle of nowhere. You, you happen upon a small community and there's horror within that. That isn't, you know, obvious at first sight. That's yeah, interesting. Yeah, seriously. And the further you get into it, the more messed up things. <laughs> things get. Texas chainsaw is a great example of that. Cause you just in that absolute chaos of that family and you don't know what's going to happen next. And you know, yeah. No, that's great. We often, I mean, on this show, we've often credited that format to a Texas Chainsaw Massacre or um, a Friday the 13th. The the idea of, I mean, in, in those films, it's often the teenagers uh, stranded alone without the help of, you know, authority figures or adults. But but if you take away that kind of teenage element of it, that it is, I can see that in shadow over Innsmouth, for instance, like you can, oh, yeah. you, that, um, and children of the corn, as you're mentioning, those definitely sure. have those same themes running throughout. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so what would you recommend if people are going to delve into HP Lovecraft as readers, what are some good starting places? Well, um, I'll start with a couple of the classic ones. Then I'll mention a couple, maybe slightly lesser known ones. I mean, the Call of Cthulhu is um, really one of the best stories um, for most people, and for me as well. I mean, and that's the story that that really gets us to that. You know, it's the foundation story for that larger Cthulhu mythos. Yeah, right. Where we're dealing with with these stories about these kind of repetitive stories about these elder gods, or a lot of that stuff was imposed on Lovecraft kind of after the fact. I mean, he knew he was building something, but other people saw more structure in it than he than he did, um, but the Call of Cthulhu is just such a delightful story where you have all these this the, this documentation and people are trying to make sense out of these little mysteries and it kind of builds slowly, slowly, slowly towards this final revelation of Cthulhu coming forth from the sea for a brief moment and then kind of going back down. I mean that's a butchered summary but that's that i don't you know i want people to enjoy it right (laughs) um the other story i really like is the dunwich horror um which is kind of a story that deals with what happens when one of these beings one of these elder god type beings um gets involved with a human woman 
and you know they have offspring together, and it, and it asks some some pretty hard questions about about that kind of interspecies romance, and and uh, it's a that's a tough story in a lot of ways. Hmm. But you see, um, I'm really interested right now in uh, John Carpenter's film Prince of Darkness, and oh yeah, and you see some overtones in that where you're trying to reach beyond the mirror for the father and these kinds of things, supernatural father figures and, and what have you. I think there's some connections there. Interesting. Um, the other story I really love is Pickman's model. That one um, isn't always held up as highly, but it's no less a great story. And that one has a fun kind of twist ending that I won't, that I won't spoil, but that story is about a painter and Lovecraft often wrote about paintings and painters. And, um, he believed that really good, weird fiction, which is what he called the kind of work that he did, that weird fiction should be realistic. Um, even though it's introducing things that are impossible because realism is the way to really get readers on board with, with if if you can do it as realistic as you can, readers are more likely to accept the crazy. Interesting. And, yeah, and he kind of thought. I think he kind of thought that painters had the ability to maybe capture those imaginative spaces in a realistic way, just as well or better than than prose writers. That's that's really fascinating to me. My uh, co-host Jay of the Dead will really appreciate that comment because he's always fighting for realism in horror movies. But oh. I will <laughs> say my limited again experience with Lovecraft adaptations is that kind of surreal, uncanny, almost fantasy element. And is that is that intrinsic to his work, or is that simply something Stuart Gordon is bringing as a director? Maybe. Um. Well, I think a little bit of both. I think Stuart Gordon, I've only seen, two. I think, two of the adaptations. One was a TV, I think it was Dreams in the Witch House. Okay. And I saw Reanimator. I haven't seen the other ones that you guys have talked about. But um, my sense of Stuart Gordon is that he tends to take us into those Lovecraftian spaces but then he kind of loses a little bit of the subtlety Lovecraft tries for through those over-the-top kind of, especially Reanimator is uh, is far goofier than than the Lovecraft story. Yeah, it verges on comedy at times for sure. Yeah, um, but you know, but I'm not really into the faithfulness of of adaptations. I think if they're going to make a movie out of a out of a source just go go for it do whatever you want to do but i think Stuart gordon is is less subtle i guess that's the best way for me to say it at least in the films that i've experienced did he do from beyond yes Stuart he did. Gordon? yeah oh i've seen that one too and that one definitely is the same that one is consistent with what i'm trying to say anyway is that that one is i think far more over the top than the than the lovecraft source okay interesting yeah are there any adaptations you're aware of that you really like of Lovecraft's work? Well, you know, it's funny because I think the best Lovecraftian film is Alien. Um, huh. Yeah, even though it's not it's not a an adaptation of a Lovecraft story directly, but it really just it's the slow burn film really that takes us. Um, I mean, it's believable, I guess. I mean, you're 
out in space and you hear that distress signal, you go to check it out and then all hell breaks loose. And that's, and part of that breaking loose is this realization that there are these entities that simply don't belong um, in our sense of how things really are. And that, and that upsets the order of things that has a really strong Lovecraftian feel. And also the descent, I think, you know, that film about caving, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Where they kind of go underground there and they discover these kind of, what are they like? Unevolved humanoids or something. Something. I'm not really sure what to call those guys. <laughs> Beastly freaks is what we call them around here. <laughs> Beastly freaks. Exactly. And so I think that has kind of a Lovecraftian mood. Um, I don't really know. I mean, the adaptations of like the acknowledged adaptations. I really like that sign. Have you seen the silent call of Cthulhu? No, I haven't seen any of the adaptations of that. I'm I'm really interested in it though. And my co-host Dave has been telling me about that. The Lovecraft historical society and what they do is they made call of Cthulhu as a silent film because they wanted to try to use the same techniques that would have been available in Lovecraft's lifetime. And the results aren't bad. It's a pretty good little film. And I think they've done one or two others, but I haven't kept up. Interesting. Yeah. My, yeah. My co-host Dave um, has seen that one and enjoyed that. Yeah. Quite a bit. Cool. Well, tell us about your book, the age of Lovecraft. Then what is, was your inspiration for writing that book and what is kind of the thrust of it? Sure. So, um, well, um, so it's an edited volume. So what, so what we did, I co-edited it with this guy named Jeffrey Weinstock, who is, and I believe he's either written or edited 18 books. And he also put out the Barnes and Noble edition of H.P. Lovecraft's Tales. Okay. And he and I both work on Lovecraft and we thought it'd be fun to do a project where we asked a team of scholars to answer two questions. Why Lovecraft? Why now? And the premise of the book is that, well, the first premise really is that Lovecraft is more popular now than, than ever before in, in history, um, which I don't think is a, is a very dramatic claim. I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence for that, but then we wanted to try to, uh, to make that more complicated by looking at all the ways Lovecraft shows up, um, not only in, in media and other places, but to trace his influence through maybe even some surprising places. And so the age of Lovecraft has what, 11 or 12 chapters, something like that. And we get into, we get into everything from popular culture to like post-humanism, you know, talking about like, um, you know, things after, after the, the sort of ascent of man, right? What would, what would happen if we were less important? And right. <laughs> um, we, we look at his influence on Neil Gaiman. Um, we, we look at the way he talks about animals and, uh, um, race. Uh, we look at, um, issues of music and Lovecraft. Uh, my chapter in the book is about Lovecraft and women. He was, I don't know if he was afraid of women, you know, and he kind of said some really, really famously weird things about, about sex and relationships. And so I kind of wanted to figure out what I, what that was all about. And so I, 
wrote up a chapter about his his fear of women. Hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> and then we have a long introduction where we talk about his impact on heavy metal music, where we talk about his uh, impact on art and just his kind of internet presence. You know, there's plush toys and board games and a lot of video um, games I noticed. Yeah, totally. I know I have a Call of Cthulhu video game for Xbox. <laughs> um, but it's it's more than than that. I mean, um, the one of the titles is kind of oh, it's uh, called Dead Space. I mean, that's uh, kind of has a Lovecraftian feel to it, where you're kind of skulking around this space. Have you played that game? No, no. Oh, it's so fun! But you're kind of going around this space station that everyone that was on it is dead, and their bodies have been taken over by these like reptilian kind of you know, or I don't know what to call them, but these kind of weird creatures and you have to shoot off their arms and their legs. So the game won't let you shoot their torso, which is what you always want to do. <laughs> anyway, I guess I won't go into it, but it's a really fun game and there's three of them now. So well, it's something else for our listeners to seek out. Well, thanks. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So where can people find the age of Lovecraft? Well, um, it's on Amazon, um, and the the nice thing about my book is that it's uh, it was released in soft cover, and it's less than twenty dollars on Amazon. I can't remember. I think it might be sixteen or seventeen dollars if 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 people wanted to buy it. But if they, but I'm sure it will be at libraries and other places as well. And I know that there's also a Kindle version around and and other things. So it just barely came out, and so I haven't really tracked all the ways um but it's uh i was just relieved that it came out in soft cover because some of my other some of the other books i've done over the years have been only released in hardcover for like 80 90 bucks and yeah um, i mean we don't do this for the money but uh i would like to have a couple readers <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> well i know we've got some serious readers in our audience um and everyone here is very interested in kind of an academic approach to horror so yeah uh, that's probably right up our alley we'll have to we'll have to take a look at that one um i'm sure also after we talk about heavy metal horror you can and you can enlighten us a bit more on uh lovecraft's uh, influence on on heavy metal that Probably will also spark a few book sales as well. <laughs> um, oh, he is all over metal, but yeah, we, we can save that for sure. So. Okay, cool. So my understanding is you have a promotional copy that we could give out to our listeners. That's right. So what we'll do is if people want to send out something on social media, preferably Twitter, I understand Carl's trying to get a presence going on, on Twitter. That would be great if you could tag Carl and or horror movie podcast in that tweet, tweet out the link to his book, which I'll put in the show notes for this episode on Amazon and, you know, something about it. You could do that on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever you're on tag, either Carl or horror movie podcast on those social media platforms. And then from everyone that does that, we will draw one winner to receive a free copy of your book. So I've got one sitting right here that I could, uh, put in the hands of a lucky listener. So Awesome. So where can people find you if they want to reach you online? What's the best place for people to find you online? Well, I am on Facebook and just under my name, Carl Cederholm. And, um, and then 
I'm also on Twitter, but I've only been on Twitter for about a month. And, but that's also under just my name, Carl Cedarholm. Um, for some reason, I have a hard time coming up with clever kind of net worthy sort of stuff. And so I just do my name and we just call it good. So that's fine. We need to get you a horror name though. We, we call uh, Kyle Bishop, Dr. Walking dead around here. Jason piles is J of the dead. And, uh, I'm Wolfman Josh and we've got Dr. Shock. So we need to, next time we have you on the show for the heavy metal horror show, we'll come up with a great horrorized nickname for you. I would love it. Awesome. Um, you guys can pick it and all, and all, uh, and I'll embrace it with all I've got. So. <laughs> Great. <laughs> okay, well, until then, remember, everyone, look in the show notes for the link to Carl's book. Send that out on your social media platforms. Tag Carl or Horror Movie Podcast, and you will be entered in a drawing to receive a copy of The Age of Lovecraft. Otherwise, look for it yourself on Amazon. Uh, I'm going to grab a copy, and uh, you should, too. Thank you. It's a good book. I really, it's uh, it's a good milestone in my career so far. So that's great. And I, I feel really dumb saying that. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's, I don't, hey, if you're not going to say it, who will? <laughs> yeah, I am super proud of this book, and I just really think that people will enjoy it if they uh, if they like academic approaches to horror and and especially if they like Lovecraft. I think this is really kind of a timely item for that. So. All right, cool. Well, that is mm. at Carl Cedarholm. That's C-A-R-L, Carl. And then Cedarholm is S-E-D-E-R-H-O-L-M. Yeah, you got it. All right. All right, so that was Carl Cedarholm. And now we are going to talk about a couple of the Stuart Gordon adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft that that we've had a chance to see somewhat recently. Um, one of those, you know, with the recent Blu-ray release of Reanimator... I've been really excited to talk about this film. Um, another that I want to talk about is Dagon. And then you're going to bring us uh, some Castle Freak coverage as well. Is that correct? That is correct. Awesome. Well, let's get to it. Herbert West is at the top of his class in medical school. How can you teach such drivel? These people are here to learn and you're closing their minds before they even have a chance. What are He's you? brilliant, but a little weird. I've broken the 6 to 12 minute barrier. I've conquered brain death. His experiments have always been unorthodox. It was dead. But lately, they're getting out of hands. And he's just made a discovery that could wake up the dead. Herbert West has affected reanimation in dead animal tissue. What are you thinking? How do you feel? Once you wake up the dead, you've got a real mess on your hands. Herbert, you're insane! Now what happened? I had to kill him! He's dead? Not anymore. Herbert West brought a lot of dead people back to life, and not one of them showed any appreciation. (laughs) 
H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale of horror, Reanimator. Mr. West. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head get a job in a sideshow? It will scare you to pieces. Reanimator is a 1985 film directed by Stuart Gordon and written by Gordon and Dennis Paoli. Paoli is uh, Gordon's right-hand man. Anytime you talk about Stuart Gordon, you should be talking about Dennis Paoli pretty much. They work together a lot, and especially on all of the H.P. Lovecraft adaptations, they are kind of co-authors of those films. Of course, the story here is credited to H.P. Lovecraft. And... This is really the first time I ever heard, and I think probably most people ever heard of Jeffrey Combs as an actor. Um, Combs plays a medical student named Herbert West, who has recently moved to the U.S. from Switzerland. And his previous uh, mentor in Switzerland, who funnily enough is named Hans Gruber, um, <laughs> this is, I guess, three years before Die Hard. So I thought yeah. that was kind of it. I was wondering if Die Hard was homaging uh, Reanimator. That's interesting. But anyway, um, so when Hans Gruber dies in a pretty intense scene that opens the film, um, his student, Herbert West, played by Jeffrey Combs, shows up in the United States at a medical school and is pretty creepy from the outset. And he Uh kind of works his way into the goings-on at this medical school and moves in with Bruce Abbott who was uh, playing Dan Kane, and they become roommates, I guess. And it's kind of becomes a bit of a Frankenstein story. In fact, it quite reminds me of Victor Frankenstein and the relationship that uh, Victor and Igor have in that film, um, of him kind of trying to get him to help him with his experimentation. And it, there's a bit of... Uh, there's a bit of Frankenstein here. There's a bit of Bride of Frankenstein here. And there's some crazy, gory, zombie-like scenes here as well. And it, it's a pretty interesting movie. Dave, what are your kind of general thoughts on Reanimator? Yeah, I, I, I've i always liked this movie. And I think that Jeffrey Combs is, is a pretty big reason why. Uh, I, I liked oh, yeah. his performance as Herbert West. Like you said, he's, he's, he's sort of, you know sort of delves right in when he gets to the school. Um, but he's also like incredibly cocky, um, which immediately puts him at odds with who's the professor, uh, Dr. Hill played by David Gale. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Put, puts him at odds. And, and the two of them, um, just, you know, constantly butting heads. But uh, Jeffrey Combs, I think just, he just does such a great job with the character. It's interesting because I was I had seen him in something before and I didn't know it was him. Obviously, I was watching recently, um, not too long ago, Steve Martin's The Man with Two Brains. Oh yeah, and Jeffrey Combs has a cameo in there as, um, of all things, he's he's a, a doctor. You know, he's wearing the um, you know the white lab coat. It's, it's just one scene. Yeah, um, but I just thought it was kind of cool to see him in in that. You know, playing sort of a similar character to what he ended up or. I shouldn't say similar character playing at least a doctor, which is what he ended up doing in uh, in Reanimator, and and the, this movie, yeah, this is one that gets uh, very crazy as far as the the gore, uh, like you were saying with with the zombie scenes. I mean, there's an, uh, probably my favorite scene, and I don't want to get too deep into it, but he gets is is when uh, Herbert West gets into an argument with a head. Yeah, you know that, exactly. that just because because of. 
again, he just stays cocky to the end. You know, nothing, nothing seems to phase him, or let's say not, doesn't phase him for long, anyway. We get at least two more Reanimator movies after this. We get Bright of Reanimator and Beyond Reanimator. And it's interesting, you know, just having seen those films more recently before going back and, and looking at this film, um, Jeffrey Combs' performance is much more staid in this movie than it is in those later films. It's He does a great job still in this film, and he has all of those creepy uh, performance notes that he, you get later on, but he's a little more... It's a bigger performance that we get from him as the series kind of continues. And I also kind of lump Frighteners into that as well, because I, I get a bit of a Herbert West vibe from his character in Frighteners. Like, <laughs> after he's seen all of these horrors, this is him coming out the other side or something in Frighteners. But I'll tell you what, if you want to see a really good performance of his, and it was in the... Um the Masters of Horror series, and it was Stuart Gordon directed it. But it's interesting because yeah. this was a Poe, uh, the Black Cat, and Jeffrey Combs played Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. And what it was, it was following him for the writing of the Black Cat and acting. You know, it was saying that here's his inspiration that this stuff actually played out. Um, and he does a really, he's really good as as Edgar Allan Poe. I don't remember uh, that. I'm going to have to go check that out again. Revisit I, that. I think it was the second series, uh, the second season okay. of, of Masters of Horror. And again, you know, it was Stuart Gordon directing uh, and Jeffrey Combs is Edgar Allan Poe. And I think it's called The Black Cat. Awesome. So it, definitely worth checking that out. I'm a okay. big fan of Jeffrey Combs. And I, you know, it's fun to see him in this film that really kind of mm-hmm. puts him on the map, especially within the horror community. But uh, yeah, this is a good movie. It's, like a lot of Stuart Gordon's work to me and and I've I can't I guess I can't take credit for this. I think it was the Austin Chronicle where I first read this snippet of a review that basically it, the horror is so extreme that it verges on camp and I think that's really true of a lot of Stuart Gordon's work. It's just right there on that line where it's almost campy. Um, I, I hate both of these words, and if somebody's got a better term for me, please put it in the in the comment section because I don't like saying cheesy, and I really don't like saying corny. But that's kind <laughs> of the vibe I get, you know, a little bit from right. from Gordon's movies. But I enjoy them; they're very cinematic, but they're very um, I don't know. They just feel like that late seventies kind of style of directing and acting, even. His later films, like Dagon, which is like 2001, it feels like you're watching a movie that was shot in 1985. So, interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's just some really interesting scenes in Reanimator, and it goes crazy. I mean, I think the scene with um, Dr. Hill and uh, Herbert West later on, to me, feels very much like that Bride of Frankenstein scene where the other doctor comes and says, look, I've been working on the mysteries of life too. Let's, right. With let's those team little, up on this kind of. <laughs> right. And you have those little things, little uh, creatures in a jar. Yeah, exactly. That, that he had built, which if you think about it, that's pretty, uh, you know, what, what Frankenstein is trying to do is, is, you know, impressive, but that's pretty amazing. Yeah, he, what what Pretorius had done. I mean, he didn't just yeah. create life; he's created a community. <laughs> yeah, it's like sea monkeys, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Taken to the nth degree. Uh, but this scene, I mean, but this movie goes 
really nuts. I mean, it's got some really visceral, gory, interesting scenes that uh, I think horror fans would have a lot of fun with. If you like older films and you and you like gore and, and that kind of stuff, if you like seeing kind of this era of makeup effects is really what it is for me. It's There's some really interesting makeup effects to kind of take a look at. And, and it's, you can just, I don't know. It, I appreciate mm-hmm. I appreciate it so much when I'm when I'm watching it. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And you know, especially as as the movie wears on a little bit, uh, gets more towards the end there. But no, absolutely, I agree with you. And that's one of the things I that was what I had remembered most about this film when I went to rewatch it years later. Were those, um, uh, you know, the 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 more violent. It's not like you get a lot of blood, but you do get a lot of of ooze and <laughs> yeah and that's intense like you know there's not to spoil anything but there's a lot of you know uh, body parts coming off and fingers mm-hmm. going and eyeballs and things you know just really gross kind of gross out stuff i mean it's right. no doubt alive but it's pretty crazy right that that's full <laughs> on splatter but this is uh just an interesting use of gore effects i think uh-huh it's a pretty simple story. There's not a lot to discuss necessarily, but mm-hmm. but it's a it's just a great mad scientist film, you know. Right. No, I agree. And I have not seen the sequels, which is interesting. But you say that Jeffrey Combs, compared to those, he seems what, what you said more reserved in this one. Or I just think not? so. Yeah, I think he just kind of gets more into the character. It's almost like watching a sitcom when. The first season, they don't really know their okay. characters. Like Seinfeld season three is where it really gets good. You know what I mean? Right, <laughs> right, right, right. They True. really know the characters of George and Kramer and, and stuff like that. That's right. kind of how I feel about um, Jeffrey Combs in this role. I mean, he's good in this movie. He, you know, he definitely cements himself as kind of an icon of, of horror cinema. But it's part, and for me, it's hard to separate that from right of reanimator and especially beyond reanimator just because oh. you know that's i've seen it the most recently but now i'm, in, now I'm uh, kind of interested to check them out and again i kind of lump frighteners into that for me I don't right, know. right it's probably not fair but um, <laughs> so what would be your rating and recommendation for reanimator i would go with uh at probably 8.5 and i think definitely buy it absolutely yeah i'm with you um i think you know as a film it is a bit dated and it's, it, you know, the acting isn't superb throughout. Like I, I like, you know, those characters that we know. I like Jeffrey Combs. I like uh-huh. David Gale, the other guy who's kind of our main character, Bruce Abbott, you know, and he's sticks around for the sequence. I just don't love him as an actor necessarily. Uh-huh. And he's in a lot of the movies. So right. um, for me, I'm going to give this one a 7.5. and okay. I, But I do think it's a classic, and if you're a horror collector, I think this is worth buying. And the Blu-ray release that I have, I really I really enjoy. I can't remember the details about who released it or anything, but um, it's a good release. I think it's the same as the... I, I don't know that I have the Blu-ray of, of Reanimator. I know I have the DVD, and it has that same cover to it. I'm pretty sure it has some, some good special features on there as well. Awesome. Let's go ahead and move into our coverage of Stuart Gordon's 1995 film, Castle Freak. Stuart Gordon, the director of Fortress, The Pit and the Pendulum, and Reanimator, takes you into the dungeons of Castle Dorsino. 
Now an American family. Welcome to Castle Riley, lady. Will inherit a legacy of evil. They say the castle is And a master of modern horror. will unleash his most terrifying creation. Stuart Gordon's Castle Free. There's somebody else here! There's somebody in the castle! Reanimators Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton. In Stuart Gordon. Castle Freak. Directed by Stuart Gordon, and once again, it has Jeffrey Combs, and it has Barbara Crampton in it. Yeah. You know, both both uh, returning from, you know, both in Reanimator, and you know, Barbara Crampton was in From Beyond, and she was also in that movie this year that I really like, We Are Still Here. Yeah. Um, she played the mother in that movie as well. Yeah. Um, anyway, th- what's interesting about this uh, Castle Freak is that it's a, it's a full moon Production. It's a Charles Band film, <laughs> um, which right away you, you hear that and it, it gives you, you, you sort of get like a certain, yeah, you know, you think about like he, he has done the Puppet Master films and, and actually one of my favorite um, Charles Band movies is Doll Man, hmm. um, which is uh, a, another movie that, that could have gone a comic route but actually stayed very serious. But anyway, Castle Freaks from 1995. Um, and it's got Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton play a married couple who are going through some um, some issues because uh, uh, a couple years earlier, um, John is is his name. Um, he was driving his uh, teenage daughter and his five year old son home, and John was drunk, and he ended up getting in, into an accident. As a result, his his teenage daughter. Rebecca was blinded. She's now blinded for life, and uh, his five-year-old son was killed. So you have um, you have John and uh, and Susan. That's Barbara Crampton's character. They're sort of they're having their issues. Um, but anyway, where the where the movie takes place is they they end up um, inheriting this uh, this castle in in Italy. Uh, as the movie opens, there's this this elderly duchess. And we're sort of following her through the house. You know, she's getting something to eat. Uh, she goes outside. Uh, she goes down into this dungeon. She grabs a cat of nine tails, opens the door, beats this guy who's chained, uh, puts the cat of nine tails down, goes upstairs, has a heart attack, and dies. So we're sort of following her through this opening scene. And and one of the things that grabbed me is just the way that, that Stuart Gordon, you know, handles them. And, with the with the the the, the very um, sharp angles, um, and and the way that uh, that he put this whole thing together, uh, and you know the look of a full moon picture, uh, there seems to be they seem to be grainier than most films, and that's just something that that struck me as I was watching this. But it's it's very dynamically directed, um, Stuart Gordon, like you're saying, very cinematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way that he puts this this movie together, but anyway, what happens is they go to the castle. They don't have any intention of keeping it. They're really there. They want to sell it. 
Um, your lawyer's like, well, we don't know exactly what's in there, so the family is going to take an inventory of everything. Well, as they're doing this, the daughter goes, uh, she, she comes across the, um, the Duchess's cat, and she follows this cat down into what would be the, the basement, the dungeon, and she hears this person who was chained up, you know, crying, and, and um, the, the, it's a person who can't actually talk, unfortunately. And so she tries to tell her father and mother that there's someone else in the castle, and they don't believe her at first. Uh, but then, obviously, they will come to believe her as the movie wears on. It's interesting, like I said, there's no comedy. There's, there's zero comedy in this movie. This is just a straightforward drama-slash-horror. Yeah. Uh, and Jeffrey Combs does, uh, again, does a great job, and he's not over the top in this. He's, he's actually, this is just like a very restrained performance for him. Um, him and Barbara Crampton, um, you know, do a good job with, with the very dramatic scenes of, of, of her, like, you know, they, they sleep in separate rooms now because she just can't bear the thought of being around him, knowing what he had done, you know, that what he had done to the family, you know, to the children. And he's trying to get, you know, he's doing what he can to, to, I guess, make it right. Uh, so you've got that whole thing going on there. But then you have this this other being in the castle, and that's where the movie gets its name, Castle Freak. You know, it's, it's very loosely based on uh, Lovecraft's The Outsider. Yes. Um, and from, from what I'm reading, um, it does, you know, uh, sort of go off on its own direction at a certain point in time. You know, like the, the beginning of the movie has a lot in, more in common with the story than the second half of the movie does. Gordon does do that as he gets, you know, later in his Lovecraft adaptations. He kind of starts... Uh, pulling from different sources and kind of goes mm-hmm. on his off on his own a little bit. Um, interestingly, Lovecraft, I'm, I'm reading here as well, said of The Outsider that this was the story of his that most closely resembled um, Edgar Allan Poe's work, who was a big idol for him. So that, that's kind of interesting that Lovecraft was a Poe fan and this was him kind of doing Poe. Um, and then we get Stuart Gordon kind of doing his take on that. But apparently this is uh, one of Lovecraft's most reprinted works and uh, one of the very most popular ever pre- published in Weird Tales. So that's, interesting. That's interesting. And I can see that, too, because it has that, that, that it's like this old Gothic castle, um, yeah. which you could definitely see Poe. I could definitely see Poe doing something with, with, a, with a story like this. But anyway, the movie... Uh, sort of goes on with, with um, this, this, uh, this other being in there. Now, the whole, the main crux, uh, what gets John into thinking about his son and what had happened, you know, other than the relationship with his wife, is that the Duchess, he finds out, had a five-year-old son of her own who died. And he actually goes down into the family crypt and he sees the crypt for the five-year-old and he looks at the picture and the picture happens to be, to look exactly like his own son. And we do find out that there is a, uh, I guess, a much a much closer uh, family bond uh, than we had realized originally, or that we come to find, you know, as the movie goes on. Yeah. But anyway, what, what, what really what really got me about the movie, aside from the fact that you know how straightforward it was, is just the the, the style of it. I mean, this castle is it was where they had filmed the Pit and the Pendulum. 
Okay. And, and Meridian, they've used the same castle for that. And Pit and the Pendulum, another Stuart Gordon film. Correct. The castle, it's just the, the, the layout of it. Even the rooms they go into, you know, they go into the nursery. And, you know, he's going with his daughter and he's describing things to his daughter. Obviously, she's blind. Um, but there are these dolls hanging from the ceiling that, um, you know, maybe back in the 20s, 30s, when this kid was young, might have been something you would have done for kids, but would have creeped the hell out of kids nowadays. Right. I mean, you got these clown dolls just hanging from the ceiling. And the, the way that the, the, the castle looked, the way um, the, the darkness of it, of the movie itself, I mean, not just with this um, this. I guess creature you'd have to call him living living in the basement and then eventually he does make his way out of there but the family story I mean we do get a flashback to what happened to what it is that that sort of tore them all apart and it's just a very it's a very dark story but it's handled so well I mean I was riveted I was like really glued to the TV when I was hmm. watching I mean I couldn't you know I was really into it, and and I think um, Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton are a reason why. Uh, yeah. But also, just like I said, the style, the way that Stuart Gordon put this together, he does he does do a few of those, you know, you know, swoops, and like I said, the jarring angles and such um, that that really I think enhanced it. Uh, this was a, a nice surprise for me. I mean, you know, like I, I I've seen some of the the more popular. Um, full moon pictures like Arcade, which I thought was okay. I, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't dislike it. Like I said, I'm a big fan of Doll Man. Yeah. Um, but this one kind of took me by surprise, and I really did enjoy it. That's awesome. Yeah, I, and and it's it's one that I would, I'm definitely going to recommend if I had to give a number rating to it. I would, I would probably give it an eight. I'd, I'd give it, you know, not too far down from uh, from Reanimator. I would give it an eight, and I'd say, you know, pick this up. The DVDs are not expensive. I mean, they're very, very inexpensive. As a matter of fact, I think Full Moon might even um, have a streaming service now where they have a lot of their films available. Whether this one is or not, I haven't checked, so I don't know for sure. But um, if you want, if you get a chance to see Castle Freak, I I think it's worth checking out. I'm becoming a Stuart Gordon fan, uh, especially just, you know, when you revisit someone's work in this close proximity, you know, back uh -huh. to back, it's kind of fun to like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting into this guy. And um, we had talked about doing a From Beyond review over on the Sci-Fi podcast. And so I think I might buy nice. Castle Freak. It's weird. It's, Castle Freak is a movie I thought I had seen. And as you sat and described it. I'm like, this doesn't sound familiar at all. <laughs> and so I must have been mixing it up with another movie. But um, I, I'm and, and the title's in, not the title's not the greatest. I'll be yeah. honest with you. You know, like, like I don't know that they I don't know that, that Full Moon is maybe when it comes to, to, to you know giving their movies titles, I don't know that the, like Doll Man. Really you cheapens know, or, it a bit, you know. It does. It it does do, you know, calling it Castle Freak. Uh, I don't know that the outsider would have described it. It's it's like they're trying to you know, obviously they're, they're, they're straight to video. They're trying to yeah. sell as many of these things as possible. So they're going to put a title on it that they think is going to, is going to get the job done. Yeah. Um, but it does. I mean, you hear a movie like Castle Freak and you're, you're even thinking, okay, well, there's probably going to be a little comedy in it. You know, it, it might mm -hmm. be one of those, like you were saying, sort of campy type of films, but it's not. And, you know, and Stuart Gordon does this too, where he likes to put his monster on the cover of his uh, mm -hmm. of his releases. I mean, even if yes. you look at the Dagon 
poster. It's a lot classier than um, all the DVDs, which just was just a monster's face with gaping mouth and you know crooked teeth, and you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's not really what the movie's like. And so I don't know. It's fine. It's not a big deal, but right, right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, now I, I will say that the um, the cover for this um, is you know the, the, this is what you're dealing with as far as yeah. the, the creature, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't even think, but I don't like, I don't really think that was good either. Cause one of the, they actually do make that as sort of a reveal, um, as the movie goes on and it's yeah. a dramatic, a sort of dramatic reveal. I'm not saying on the level of like, um, the original 19, what is it? 25, uh, Phantom of the Opera with Lon Chaney, you know, that big right. reveal there, but it's, it's meant to be. Yeah. And because it's on the cover, it's, kind of spoiled for you that's a moment that's, that's kind of spoiled for you yeah i mean the same with dagon as well mm-hmm. interesting all right well that's one to check out i'm excited about that review and uh it's one that i'm gonna put on my list right away it's worth saying all right let's move into our coverage of the 2001 film dagon in a boat off the coast of España. Honey, our stock could be going underwater and we wouldn't even know it. What are you doing? I'm just going on vacation. Let's say we've got a storm coming up. Brace yourself! We're gonna have to take the raft into that town for help. We need help. What kind of church is this? What the hell's going on here? <gasps> I'm uh, supposed to meet someone here? A woman? Senorita? You want to tell me what's wrong with everybody in this town? I tell you a secret. No one leaves. People come, but no one leaves. Why are you trying to kill us? What have we done to you? I am here. I've been waiting for you. Barbara? They give Dagon. And the child will be immortal. If it happens to me, You've got to promise you'll kill me. We are children of Dagon. It is your destiny. We will forget your world and your friends. There will be no time. No today, no yesterday. Only the forever. And forever. And forever without end. I don't have a choice, do I? Okay, Dagon is a 2001 film directed by Stuart Gordon, written by Dennis Paoli, based on H.P. Lovecraft. And the essential bare-bones plot of this is it's about a village full of sea monsters. Uh, From the IMDb description, it says, A boating accident runs a young man and woman ashore in a decrepit Spanish fishing town, which they discover is in the grips of an ancient sea god. 
And yeah, that's basically what you have here. Uh, you've got this young man, Paul, played by Ezra Godin, and his girlfriend, Barbara, played by Raquel Moragno, on this beautiful yacht sailing off the coast of Spain, like on the coast of Brava somewhere. Barbara is deeply in love with Paul, and he is just not digging it. He's not digging the whole scene. He's recently become wealthy, and he's telling her, look, none of this brings me happiness. And his mind is just elsewhere. He is an incontent main character. And suddenly, this giant storm approaches their ship. And their ship is tossed into the rocks, and one of their friends on the ship is injured. And so Paul and Barbara say... You two stay here. We'll go into the village and get some help. So they take the little raft into the fishing village and they meet just the creepiest characters you've ever seen. They run into a boat captain who looks like the zombies from Shockwaves. If Max found Sideout was playing the role of those zombies and this weird looking priest from the church. And he says, one of you stay here with me and we'll go report this to the police. And the other one head back out into the storm with their shockwave-style zombie boat captain and get your friends. And so Paul says, as much as I hesitate in leaving you with this creepy priest, you at least speak the language. So he sends her with the priest and he heads back out on the ship. And Paul is this reluctant hero throughout the movie. He is really not heroic in any way. Barbara is. She's ready for action. But Paul's kind of a wuss and just not ready to accept the hero's call. His girlfriend, she's kind of the more heroic of the two uh, characters. Like She has a hero's uh, spirit. But he leaves her in the village, and he goes back out. When he gets back to the boat, his friends are gone. And he can't you know, believe what he's seen. He, they, he goes back into the town to find his girlfriend, and now he can't find her. And pretty soon, he's all alone, And what had looked like an idyllic village uh, when the sun was out now in the heavy rain and mud and darkness is kind of turning into this horror scenario. And the locals of the town are after him. Basically, they're kind of like these fish people. And they're worshippers of the sea god Dagon, who was an actual god of grain and fish and fishermen. Um, from this area a long time ago, and is mentioned even in the Bible, this Dagon. And oh. they worship Dagon in this village, and the people are fish-like as well. And it's interesting, the, the short story that this is based on, it's based on two short stories. One with the title Dagon, the other called The Shadow Over Insmith. And The Shadow Over Insmith is actually... Uh, Closer to what we have here in the film Dagon, Dagon, the short story, which is one of H.P. Lovecraft's very earliest works, and then The Shadow Over Innsmouth is one of his latest works. That's kind of fun that it's an adaptation of these two stories at the beginning and the end of his life. Um, it, It follows the second much more closely. It's really just shadows of the first film, and they take, of course, the title from it. Um, in the novella, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, this took place in New England. And so in this movie, they move it to Spain. And Innsmouth, if you actually look of, at the title, it's in, in mouth, essentially. <laughs> in's mouth. And they actually do that when they translate the name of the village in Dagon. They call it Imboca, which means in mouth in Spanish, which is kind of fun. And 
HP Lovecraft does a lot of fun things like that. Like when they go to the hotel, uh, the guy's name is Gilman. And if you look at that, you know, closely, his name is Gilman, which is kind of fun. <laughs> and a lot of these characters have these crazy, you know, octopus tentacles and gills and shark's teeth and all kinds of awesome uh, fish-like qualities. And Paul is running all over this little town um, dealing with these kind of almost zombie-like monsters trying to find his three friends, I guess. His, his, uh, his buddy, his girlfriend, and his, and his friend's wife. And um, it's, it's a fun movie. And there, of course, is a big, you know, sea monster god at the heart of all of the action that's going on here. And it's, I don't know, it's just a movie that when I watch it, I think this could be a lot of fun. Like, this could be so good if made now. And then, you know, and I and again, I feel like I'm watching a movie from 1985. And then I, <laughs> then I realized, no, wait, this is from 2001. <laughs> like, so I don't know. It, it, it does, again, it borders on camp for me. It's a little bit cheesy. It's a little bit corny. Um, but it's very cinematic and it's really fun to watch. I mean, it's a really, really fun watch. So it reminds me of a lot of the lesser Stephen King adaptations where you just think, man, this could be a really good film. Like it's, it's, but it's still fun to watch like storm of the century. It's like, I can imagine like a great movie based on storm of the century. And even though that film is, you know, it's a made for TV kind of miniseries, it's not, the best quality, but it's still just a really enjoyable watch. And that's kind of how I feel about Dagon. There's part of me that says this could be a great contemporary remake, other than the two factors that, one, the film kind of is contemporary still, and two, I would say if it were to be done, Spring is probably the closest thing we've seen to it right now. So if you liked that movie Spring, this is kind of a darker, twisted, more fantastical version of that. Uh, Dagon, you know, is a film, I'd probably give it a seven, but again, I think it's honestly worth a buy because you're going to get this DVD for really cheap and it's a fun one to watch. So yeah, oh. check it out if, if, if you want. Yeah, I definitely will. I, I've, I've not seen that one, uh, but it does sound intriguing. It's pretty fun. I, I, I enjoyed it. Nice. Well, Dave, any other H.P. Lovecraft movies that you're aware of that you well, feel like we should be checking out or talking about? It's one I had mentioned um, in a previous episode well over a year ago. Uh, and it was put out by, I'm pretty sure, by the H.P. Lovecraft Society. Uh, and it's called the, you know, the Call of Cthulhu. Oh, yeah. And it's just interesting because it was made you know, not too many years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but they made the style of the movie uh, as if it was made right when Lovecraft had written it, and that made it in the 1920s. So it's a silent film, okay. sort of sepia-toned, and it's not long. It's under an hour. I know it's under an hour, but just very well made. I don't know if I picked it up on DVD from them, uh, but I'm sure that it, it might be available online somewhere too, but that's Call of Cthulhu. Okay. And let me see what year that is. And uh, is it the 2005 film? Yes, that would be that would be the one. That would be the 2005 film. Then there is another movie. Now this is a low, a much lower budget film. 
uh, came out a few years ago. I'm trying to find the title of it. Or Beyond the Wall of Sleep. Okay. Okay. And it actually stars William Sanderson. Um, for those who are not familiar, I don't know if anyone, if, if you're familiar at all with the old 1980s sitcom Newhart. Uh, oh, you know, yeah. Set in, set in Vermont mm-hmm. with the, um, you know, with the uh, bed and breakfast. Uh, I William love Sanderson. That show. Yeah, I did too. I was a big fan of it. Uh, William Sanderson is the only one of the three brothers who talks. The one who says, "Hi, I'm Larry. This is my brother Daryl. This is my other brother Daryl." <laughs> that's 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 William Sanderson. That's what I always think of. And he's been in other things too. I know he was in other. He's been in quite a few other movies. He was in Fight for Your Life back in the seventies, and so he's done other things. But that's what I always think of when I when I, when I see William Sanderson. Uh, and of course, uh, Blade Runner too. He had that role in Blade Runner as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, that one, I don't remember a lot about it. I know I had uh, done that during 2014's 31 Days of of Halloween. Okay. Uh, and I was not impressed with Beyond the Wall of Sleep. All right. Um, it was just too bizarre. It was too out there. For, um, it, just, it just didn't work for me. Uh, it also has Tom Savini in it. He plays a sheriff. Uh, has has a small role in that, okay. but it's not one I can I I can't I can't recommend it just just because I I just it it didn't impress me when, when I had seen this one. But that is one based on um, an H.P. Lovecraft story. I'm not sure exactly which one, but well, Fulci he credits H.P. Uh, Lovecraft as the inspiration for both City of the Living Dead and House by the Cemetery. Oh, so wow. That's interesting, but he doesn't actually have any kind of story or screenplay credit on those films. So. Interesting. And and then the, that's kind of interesting that he mentioned those two and not The Beyond. Yeah. The Beyond is the middle film. I mean, those those other two are the, you know, the, the, the first and third in the trilogy. It's funny how he didn't, he didn't throw The Beyond in there as well. Well, maybe he did and I just didn't pick up on it. <laughs> not much. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, and I don't know for a fact he did. I didn't even know he had credit. I didn't even know he had said that the... Those two were uh, inspired by Lovecraft. Nope, I'm not seeing it on there. Interesting. Now there's Interesting. A, there's one other film that I want to check out now as I'm scanning through these called Screamers from 1979. Uh, that is also based on the same story as Dagon, the shot over Innsmouth. So. Okay. Oh, and you know what? I do have another one to discuss. It's Haunted Palace. Okay, okay. Haunted Palace... Uh, it's from 1960. It's The Haunted Palace. I'm sorry, from 1963. It's Roger Corman directed it, and it stars Vincent Price. Okay. They tried to put it into their post cycle. You know, the very popular yes. uh, Corman, Vincent Price, Ed mm-hmm. Allan Poe movies they were doing, Pitting the Pendulum and Fall of House of Usher and all that. But The Haunted Palace is actually based on Lovecraft's story, uh, the, strange, uh, the Case of Charles Dexter Ward. As a matter of fact, uh, Vincent Price plays Charles Dexter Ward. It's a Lovecraft story. They use Lovecraft for it. They just sold it as Poe. Interesting. Um, you know, to, to try and make it fit into that cycle of films just because they were so popular. Yeah. Um, an uncredited writer on on this movie was Francis Ford Coppola. Oh, wow. He handled some of the additional dialogue is what it's saying here. Um, but uh, it, 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 has, it has Edgar Allan Poe from the poem. And it's, you know he wrote a poem, "The Haunted Palace," but it really has nothing to do with anything with Poe's story that I can, that, as far as I know. Um, I think this is all sort of based on um, the case of Charles Dexter Ward. 
Fascinating. And it's a good it's a good entry. I mean, I like these movies, you know, that that whole sort of cycle from the 60s. You got some comedic ones in there as well, like The Raven and um, uh, was a comedy of terrors, I think it was. Um, but the, the whole cycle of them are, are very entertaining. You know, when you got Roger Corman together with with Vincent Price, it's it's almost like they were getting close to doing Hammer style films. You know, with, with the with the gothic uh, set pieces and and um, and the music and everything, this is definitely one of them. And it even has um, Lon Chaney Jr. has a small part. I think it's the only time that um, that uh, Vincent Price and Lon Chaney Jr. had worked uh, together in the same movie. Wow. Other than other. Yeah, other than Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, but then Vincent Price only provides a voice at the end of that. They, they didn't actually work together. In this one, they actually have some scenes together. Uh, and it's it's worth checking out. I think this was on one of the Vincent Price sets, okay. the Blu-ray sets that, that Screen Factory has put out. I want to say it was on Volume 2. I don't know that for a fact, but I think it was put out on Volume 2. Okay. I need to check my Vincent Price, my lesser... MGM Vincent Price set and see if it's on there. <laughs> yeah, the, there's a good chance it will be too because it was released. You know the whole Midnight Madness mm-hmm. collection that MGM had put out. Yeah, I think this might have been on DVD. I think this might have been um, on one of those as well. I can't say for sure, but I think it might have been. Awesome, man. Yep. Well, uh, one good thing for filmmakers out there is that all of H.P. Lovecraft's work pre 1923. It is public domain, so right. uh, it's up for grabs. If you want to use some classic H.P. Lovecraft, it's some great source material. Stuart Gordon has certainly made a career out of adapting H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft. Yeah, so. right. <laughs> yeah, and doing it well. Yeah, that's the thing. And doing you know doing a really good job with it too, or at least very interesting. <laughs> All right, well, that should bring us to the end of our H.P. Lovecraft coverage. I'm sure this was maddening to listen to for any true fan of H.P. Lovecraft, as you and I are both uh, noobs, I guess, right, when yeah. it comes to Lovecraft. Right. But uh, hopefully Carl Cederholm's input helped a lot to really uh, satiate your H.P. Lovecraft thirst. Dave, uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you online and uh, any other plugs you'd like to throw out there this week? Sure. Find me online at um, uh, dvdinfatuation.com. I think I'm up to like 2060 now. So I'm getting there. Once I hit June 20th, that's kind of a big date because it's June 20th, 2017 uh, will be when I hit 2500. So once I hit June 20th of this year, I'm just winding down to one year left and each, each day will be like, okay, this is the last... July 4th, (laughs) as I'm going along. So you can check me out there. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at DVD Infatuation. I do have uh, a Facebook page. You you can follow the link in the show notes to get to that. And I do co-host the Land of the Creeps podcast as well with with Greg Amortis, um, Jesse Robbins, and um, hopefully sometime soon again, um, Hatfield Hatch will be back on too. I said last time he's got his um, uh, he's in school right now, so he hasn't had a lot of time for uh, for the podcast. Uh, but hopefully he'll uh, he'll get some more time in the future as well. And something else I'm throwing out there: I do um, have intentions to put together a solo podcast. 
uh, for DVD Infatuation. Uh, I don't know exactly what it's going to be called. Let's just say right now it's the Untitled DVD Infatuation <laughs> Podcast. Yes. Uh, and it's going to, it's not going to be necessarily horror-centric. It's going to be movie-centric. I'm going to be d- doing, you know, all different types of films. Um, it's going to be broken down. The way I have it planned right now is it's going to, each, each show is going to be broken down into segments, maybe about a half hour. Um, to 40 minutes. I'm going to try and keep it in that time frame um, and like with two or three segments for each show uh, where I'm just going to be talking about different things um, with movies, some things related to um, my site where I'll you know, be discussing some of, my, some of my lists. I put a lot of lists out there. Uh, maybe talk about some of the movies on these lists of mine, um, but also just other things in general, like just, just different categories, just anything that kind of... Uh, I think is sort of interesting at the time. Uh, like I said, we will be there will be discussions of horror uh, uh, on there, but um, it's not going to be you know a solely horror podcast. It's it's going to be mostly it's going to be talking about movies, uh, and I'm that's still getting put together right now. Um, hopefully, I can uh, you know put that together sooner than later. I have a lot of learning to do. I've never edited. I've never. You know, had anything to do with like bringing um, audio in or, or anything along those lines. So I know nothing about that. Um, but I pain do have in the some, butt, man. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. But uh, at least I have a uh, people I can ask, which is great. Yeah. You know, and to, to get some advice. So that's um, what I'm looking at uh, doing now. And and the books are still coming. Um, one of them is is. Uh, I think the closer of the of the two is the um, cinematic oddities one, um, and hopefully that will be coming uh, in the near future as well. Cool. Well, yeah. Speaking of podcasts that aren't just about horror, I do a podcast called Movie Streamcast that covers new movies streaming online. We usually talk about what TV we've been binge watching on Netflix recently as well. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's over at MovieStreamcast.com. Yep. I also produce the Sci-Fi Podcast. The sci-fi podcast.com and I'm on probably every third episode of that one and those guys talk about all things science fiction there oftentimes are horror crossovers uh, due to the nature of science fiction so I think most horror fans would probably enjoy that podcast as well but follow me on twitter at Icarus Arts which is the name of my production company check out Jay's other show Movie Podcast Weekly at moviepodcastweekly.com hopefully we'll hear some fun live shenanigans from the MPW crew since Geekcast Rye is in town. You can leave us your comments for this episode at horrormoviepodcast.com in the comments section. Send us an email at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com or you can leave a voicemail. Guys, more voicemails. Real talk here for a second. Don't you guys think it's creepy that you just listen to us every week? We have no idea what your voices sound like. Quit being creepers. I want to hear from all of our message board regulars at the very least. Juan, David, Dino, Sal, leave us voicemails. Graham, Redcap Jack, Snowy Otter. Snowy Otter, where the hell have you been? I only see you on Instagram. Adam Michaels, I like your green hair. I saw that on Instagram today. Jason Dragon, Tony's on fire. We've got like five Tonys now that I know about. I want to hear voicemails from all of the Tonys. And the ladies, Holly, leave us a voicemail. Jessica, Elizabeth Trotter, both Allisons, Allison with an I and with a Y. Shannon, Scott, Ryan, Gareth, uh, Eric, Ian, Michael, Keith, Kagan, Mr. Watson, Joe McGregor, Professor Headbutt, really bored. Guys, 
Leave us a voicemail. Our old schoolers, where are you? Chris XS, Nisu Shaw, Peter, Levi, Deadbox Mike, Jeff Hammer, The Dude, Jody, Lee, a few more other Davids have come out of the woodwork. Thank you so much. Keep commenting. Leave us a voicemail. Fritz, not you. You've left enough. Rob from Belgium. Your excuse due to terrorist attacks, but everybody else needs to leave a voicemail. If I forgot to mention you, it's because you don't comment enough on the boards. There are thousands of you, maybe tens of thousands of you that have never been to the boards. Why not? Holler at your boy. We're giving you the show for free. Let us know you're listening. And if this goes well, think of it. We could play a couple of your listener voicemails every episode. Wouldn't that be fun? So, apparently you can call Jay at 801 382-8789 but why not just record the audio right there on your smartphone and email it much simpler, sounds better or you can follow us on Twitter at HorrorMovieCast actually guys as I said that, I realized that's a lot of people thank you all so much for supporting what we do it makes it worthwhile find all of our past episodes for this show in the archives at HorrorMoviePodcast.com Special thanks goes out to singer-songwriter Frederick Ingram, whose full album I heard for the first time just this last week, for the use of his music. You can check his music out at ReverbNation.com slash Frederick Ingram. Come visit us again two weeks from now when we actually will release a horror comedy episode, I think. We hope to see you then, right here on Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Horror movies.